This episode is brought to you by KPMG Risk Services. KPMG believes that when you've earned the trust of all your stakeholders, that's when your business has a solid platform to grow. That's the trusted imperative. KPMG Risk Services develop and put in place dynamic risk strategies designed to help your business earn that all-important trust. Go to read.kpmg.us slash trust to learn more. Hey, this is Randy Gage, and you're listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Hey, welcome to a very special episode of the Naked Mindset Podcast. Now, you know that I very rarely interview people. And when I do interview somebody, it's because they bring you extraordinary value. And I am beyond excited and honored to introduce to you Mr. Randy Gage. Uh, Randy is a thought-provoking, critical thinker who will make you approach your business and your life in a whole new way. He's the author of 14 books translated into 25 languages, including the New York Times bestsellers, Risky is the New Safe and Mad Genius. He's spoken to more than 2 million people across more than 50 countries and is a member of both the Speaker's Hall of Fame and the Direct Selling Hall of Fame. Look, when he's not prowling the podium or locked in his lonely writer's garret, you'll probably find him playing third base for a softball team somewhere. Uh, I got to know Randy more than 20 years ago. Um, he's somebody that I call a friend. I'm honored to call him a friend. Um, but he's also been an extraordinary coach for me over this 20 years period of my life. He's helped me grow my business and myself. And in fact, his prosperity teachings and his teachings on abundance were one of the inputs for me into his world. He's an extraordinary man, an incredible genius, um, and he's going to talk to you today um, about his new book, Radical Rebirth. I'm going to ask him some questions, and he's going to expand on what it means to have a radical rebirth, what it means to actually kill off the old you so you can create a new life. Uh, I'm privileged, honored, and very excited to bring you this interview. Um, here he is, the one and only Mr. Randy Gage. Cue the music. You're listening to the Naked Mindset Podcast. My name is Chris Lianos, and I'm going to help you expose and blow up the unconscious patterns holding you back from success so you can get what you want. Now, let's get on with the show. Randy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, the uh, the Naked Mindset podcast. I, I very rarely have guests, but you're somebody I have incredible respect for and known you for a long time. And you're, you're a coach of mine um, and you're somebody who's just got incredible success. So uh, I want to say a huge thank you for taking time out of your day to be part of this podcast. And uh, yeah, I want to talk about your new book, Radical Rebirth. Well, I'm just... Uh... I'm trapped because of the pandemic, but I'm wishing I was in Sydney right now. So I'm, I'm living vicariously through you. <laughs> yeah, we, we'd go and have a spaghettini. That's what we would do. Yes. Would do. Yes. I miss my uh, spaghettini with chili more yeah. than you could ever know. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll come down when it's, when, when we're back on. Um, look, I've got some questions I want to ask you about the book. Um, but I suppose there are two beginning questions that 
are not about the book. Um, and the first one is, is more of a very general question. Uh, a lot of my listeners uh, like to know what success people do during the day. Like, do you go to the toilet? Do you drink water? Do you, what do you do? What's a day in the life of Randy Gage actually like? Is it as exciting as we think? <laughs> well, on Mondays, I usually fix my, rewire my stereo wires. On Tuesday, <laughs> I soak my comb. <laughs> on uh, Thursday, <laughs> actually, I have a, a perfect day for me is what I try to do every day, which means, <clears throat> but I don't land it every day, but I, my, my perfect, the routine or the outcome I'm looking for, I want to get up before the sun does. Mm. I want to get my cardio done, drink my protein shake, check my messages. I do a lot of international business. So, yep. you know, you're going to bed when I'm waking up. So if it's something from Australia, it's waiting in my inbox. I don't fall victim to my inbox because that's a horrible way to start the day. But I do check it and I check my signal or WhatsApp. And just was there something, yeah, I've got clients in Europe and it's already four in the afternoon there or three in the afternoon and they might mm -hmm. need an answer on something because we're scheduling a photo shoot for a catalog I'm designing for them or a website or something. So I look for that stuff, <coughs> just make sure... <coughs> There's no fires burning because I, I do have the productivity habit of I read an email once. So when I read it, that's the time to respond to it or delete it or whatever has to happen. I don't like, okay, yeah, I have to do that later. Okay. So I'm really just looking through subject lines, where they're from, who they're from. And, you know, is it five exclamation points, urgent emergency as soon as you wake up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I want to be, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do mostly my self-development in during cardio. So yep. I'm probably on the, uh, the bicycle stationary bike or the elliptical and I'm listening to podcasts. And then I want to be writing mm. and I'm going to write all morning. Hopefully when I do need a break, I do believe in this circadian rhythms that mm -hmm. if you're, you know, when I'm really writing for 50 minutes or so, Okay, get out, fix another green tea, eat a banana. Uh, there I might uh, respond to an email I noticed earlier that is something that, you know, because if that's a kind of a mental break from the writing. Um, <clears throat> and then back, and then usually the afternoons are, uh, I'll have lunch, I'll do some returning calls, returning emails, then I'll do a resistance training workout. Uh, and then I'll try to still do some more creative stuff. I want to finish by 6 or 7 p.m. And then hopefully that could be like real people and <laughs> go on a date or meet someone for dinner or yeah. watch a movie or whatever the case may be. But yeah. that's I like I like to work 10, 12 hours with the lunch breaks and the exercise breaks in there. And that's a that's my route. That's my perfect routine. Yeah, you've got quite a productive day, though, right? Like you're you're not fluffing around. Like it's. Do you use a planner or something like that, or do you use it just your routine mm -hmm. is your routine? Do you do you do you use a, a system to plan out your days, or is it just that's what it is? Uh, when I have a lot of balls, I'm juggling, which is frequently because I like to 
paint myself in a corner. That's how I'm so productive. I say, yes, I'll write the copy for this website and you'll have it by Tuesday and I'm going to create a catalog concept for you and you'll have that on Thursday. And I, so I, I do need to be productive. And when I have too many balls, then I do. Yeah. You know, I got a chiropractic appointment, write a blog, new TOC for my new book. I got to do slides for the client in Turkey. I've got to schedule a photo shoot for the other European deal. Um, and then a follow-up email to Mamie Brown's little baby boy, Leslie Calvin Brown about something that he wants me to do for him. So like, that's my actual to-do list for today. Got it. Got it. Uh, and of course your podcast was on the list as well. Yeah. So in your book, you, you make, um, you make a reference that you're an atheist. Now, are you saying that when, when did that actually happen for you? Because obviously you, you, have a, a background of being part of the unity church right so you were part of yeah. unity year for a long time when you say atheist do, do you define it as don't uh, is it is it a god religion that is the issue or is it a spiritual connection that's the issue what what do you define as atheism for you well remember i'm a writer so words mean everything to yeah. me yeah yeah so i would say i'm an atheist and i would say you're an atheist did you know that you're an atheist? I didn't know that, no. You you don't believe you're an atheist? Not in the context of uh, a, a spiritual connective source, because uh, that's my definition of atheism, I suppose, is not so believing in that. Let's test that premise. Right. Do you believe Mercury is God? No. Do you believe Zeus is God? No. Do you believe Buddha is God? No. Shiva? The no. destroyer, the death shatterer of worlds? No. Okay, so what we've established is we're both atheists, but I might be an atheist for one extra God than you do. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. that's, a, that's, a, that's a great example of questioning the premise. <laughs> yeah, and I really, I, I don't really... And I'm not one of these militant atheists. People think I should be, right? I get letters all the time. You got to replace, you know, Christopher Hitchkin. It was the kind of the four horsemen. You had Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Michael Shermer, Sam Harris, I think. And so Christopher, who was, was one of the most brilliant people has ever walked the planet, is no longer with us. And um, so people are like, you have to take his place. And I'm like... I have no desire to be a militant atheist. I'm actually a fundamentalist agnostic. Mm. Mm. Meaning, I don't, you know, I, I really am agnostic. I don't know. I can't prove there, you know, you can never prove a negative. So mm. if you tell me there's little green men on Mars, I cannot prove that there are not little green men on Mars. Because right, right. I would show you all the evidence and you say, yeah, but your cameras didn't catch them or you didn't realize they're invisible or yeah. they were hiding behind the mountain. Yes. I can't prove it. Right. So I can't prove there's no Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, Hindu, Krishna, anybody. Um, I do. But I, uh, I but I'm agnostic about it. So I. And I love that there are people who get power from their faith. Mm. 
And I have no problem with that. As you could see in the book, mm. my problem is the dogma mm. and the doctrines of organized religion and the insidious, often evil beliefs that they program people with. So what is the, we talk a lot in the book, um, and I'm, I'm about three quarters of the way through it, and you talk about limiting beliefs, you talk about the foundational beliefs that, that, that we grow up with. What would you say is your foundational belief now that underpins who you are as a person that keeps you on track? What, what is it you fundamentally believe? I fundamentally believe that the what makes a prosperous life is, for me, is staying on the path to enlightenment. Right. And I don't say enlightenment like the, in a social signaling kind of way. I mean, I've got to be on a path that I'm getting closer to the highest possible version of myself. Mm. And when I'm on that path, I'm productive, I'm healthy, I'm happy, I have mad genius creativity, yep. uh, and I'm doing work that just lights me up. And I'm eager to throw the sheets off the bed in the morning and jump into my day. And it took me, you know, it's such a, it's such a cliche to say it's a journey, not the destination, but there's a really good reason why that is a cliche because it took me decades to find that out because mm. I'm this analytical person and I'm like, okay, where I want to get to this point. And when I reach that point, that means I'm a success. So I want to be in the Speaker Hall of Fame. Okay, I made it. I want to write a New York Times bestseller. I made it. Mm. I want to be a millionaire. Okay, I made it. But every time I would get to one of those, what I thought was the destination, I realized, well, that's just the second stop on the subway. Mm. And there's, there's a whole bunch of stops after this one. <clears throat> and it took me a really long time for somebody for all the work I've done in personal growth and self-development took me a, a shocking astounding length of time to get to that realization but yes. I think I finally made it to that awareness yeah what what triggered you to write this book I mean you've written so many books on prosperity and you've taught about prosperity for a while um what what got underneath your skin that you thought the world needs this book? And it's an amazing book. Like I, like I said, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. I think by far, this is your best written work. I love the way it's written. Um, the prose just flows off the page. It sings. Um, I think it, it carries the concept so brilliantly. But why did you write it? Like, what was the trigger for you? It was my responsibility to the universe mm. because um, while I don't necessarily believe in some of the batshit crazy things that organized religion might teach, I do believe there is a power 
that we all are part of, a, a spiritual awakening, a, a force greater than ourselves. And maybe it's nature, maybe it's natural evolution. Um, but I do believe that I've been really blessed to be in the flow of that process. And the, the story that never made it in the book and I don't know why it never made it in the book. It never, it wasn't that I kept it out of the book. I just never occurred to me to put it in the book because it was just kind of one of these foundational assumptions you begin with. But if you watch the very first uh, prosperity live stream that I did the first week of January, mm -hmm. 2021 here, I started this new weekly uh, prosperity ministry, not, it's a for-profit ministry. It's an unchurch. Yes. Um, and it's an amazing, uh, amazing program. I know there's several people from down under that are, that are listening to that and watching that. So it's really great. Well, so the very first one, I told the story of being in the crappy room with the crappy view of the airport Marriott in Miami, where I was ready to blow my brains out. Mm and writing my suicide journal entry to myself. And I was blessed that, you know, I, I was uh, working with a therapist and it was Christmas Eve, by the way, just to keep the dramatic, romantic aspect of it, right? So here it is Christmas Eve and I'm there because I'm, I've just got out of my 11th negative dysfunctional relationship in a row I've moved out of the house. I've got all these frequent flyer points and hotel points. So I just checked myself into the Marriott here in Miami um, and didn't have the foresight to say, well, you know, what's the best Marriott in Miami? You know, what about, you know, one with a good view? And, you know, no, I was at the airport one because I lived in airports in those days. And so I got professional help and didn't kill myself. And what this book was, was kind of the catharsis of recognizing for everybody out there, you don't have to kill yourself when your life is miserable. You don't have to kill yourself when you hate yourself. And that's where I was at. I hated myself. Hmm. I had a lot of money. I was very successful. Everybody from the outside, if I would have done that, if I would have gone through with that, everybody would say, he had everything. Why would he kill himself? He, no, I didn't have everything. I had no mental harmony. I had no spiritual peace. I had no healthy relationships. I didn't have my health even. Um, had a lot of money and I was semi-famous in my area, you know, in my space. Um, but the book is kind of the recognition that you don't have to kill yourself. You can kill off the parts of yourself that you don't like, mm -hmm. or in my case, that you hate. And you really can give yourself a rebirth. You can give yourself a fresh start. And um, that's really the, that was, that was the catalyst in answer to your question. It was just that it took me all these years to kind of put it together mm. and articulate it and get that formula that, um, because my friends would joke, well, Randy's on his fourth midlife crisis. Let's hope he, you know, figures it out this time. Yeah. 
And it took me writing the book, because of course, you know yourself, you write books for yourself, you write what you need to learn. Absolutely. So what I had to learn was that, no, don't beat yourself up because you're 50 years old and you just figured out you want to change your whole life. Don't beat yourself up and be negative because you're 60 years old and you want to recreate or reinvent your life. Celebrate that. Mm. And some of the people listening to this are of the age they could live to be 200. Mm. It's possible the people, some people watching this are of the age that they will live forever, that they will be able to trade into a new body or they will be able to download their consciousness into a microchip of some sort or manner. Um, So, okay, you wanted to be a dentist when you were 24 and you got out of college and you did that, but maybe when you're 45, you you wanna be a sculptor or a dancer. (laughs) You know, or maybe you want to join the army or maybe you want to run away with the circus. Um, That's great because that's that evolutionary process of moving another step closer to the highest possible version of yourself. And for the people who read it so far, the feedback I get, it's so liberating for them because we're our own worst critics I'm my own worst critic. I beat the hell out of myself. Most people I know do the same thing. And I had been beating the hell out of myself because I kept, you know, it, it, it was really the first, you know, and I, I did rebirths before I knew they were rebirths, right? When you're sitting in a jail cell for armed robbery and burglary at 15 years old, you kind of figure out, you know, this this life plan I have isn't working very well. I might need to change up some things here. Yeah. And so I had experiences like that, getting diagnosed HIV positive in 2006. And it seems crazy looking back on it today. But let me tell you, in 2006, when your doctor said, I'm afraid I don't have good news, you made your will, you started, you know, do I need to put my condo up for sale? Do I need to, what kind of arrangements do I need to make? Because people were dying yeah. a lot. Yeah. And now that's not a death sentence. That's a treatable disease like measles or mumps, right? Yeah. Yeah. But 2006, it wasn't. So you, you know, and there's, I'm sure there's people watching whether it was that diagnosis or cancer or leukemia, losing a loved one. Um, you, you get the opportunity to say, well, wait a minute, let me just reevaluate the, the premise of my life. You know, talk about questioning premises. Maybe I want to question the premise of my entire existence. Mm, mm. Because, you know, how many people are doctors because their <clears throat> parents were doctors and their grandparents were and their great grandparents are, you know, we have 11 generations of our family well, have served in the military. The path, just following the path into uni yeah. because somebody else said that that's what they should be doing. Yeah. And it would never. For most people, until they read that book or some kind of wake-up call like that, it would never occur to them to say, well, do do I really want to be a dentist or am I just being Mm. a dentist because my father and my grandfather were? Mm. Mm. 
I love you, you made this statement, which I really love. You said your need to protect your identity conflicts with your ability for logical, rational thought. You made that statement in the book, early in the book. And I think that that's such a profound statement. Why do you think that's so important? I, I call it a volunteer lobotomy. Mm. And I say, every time you attach a label to yourself, you are lowering your IQ, essentially. Even though you have not actually lowered your IQ, you have put a firewall around part of your brain that you can no longer access. Right. So if you look here in the United States and I see a similar dynamic happening where you are down under, I see a similar dynamic happening in Europe and the UK. Um, yesterday was President's Day. I posted a picture on my Facebook page with myself and President Obama yes. where a luncheon I got to have with him and got the official photographer with the seal president, you know, but the date and everything. Yes. So I put that on my Facebook page, you know, happy President's Day, Barack Obama and tagged him, you know, thanks for your service to America. Yes. And I knew what was going to happen, but, you know, I didn't care, but I knew, I thought this would be intriguing to see. <clears throat> and right away, I've lost all respect for you. I, you know, there was now, and many, many just, really fun, sure. supportive, great messages. Mm. There's four or five people were just so viscerally blinded by the label that they have assigned themselves right. that they can't even look at a picture of somebody on President's Day. And like what gave me the idea is, uh, I forget somebody I followed on, on, on Twitter, tweeted out, hey, on President's Day, here's two of my favorites. And it was a picture of them with both Bushes, Senior right. and W. And uh, I thought, what a cool thing to do on President's Day. I'm going to do that. And and I'm sure I know I don't even have to read the comments to know they had to get the woke liberals who were just eviscerating for that because they've attached a label to themselves. Mm -hmm. And I have so many Trump loving friends and so many Trump hating friends and so many Hillary loving friends and Hillary hating friends. And they're not capable of rational thought. They just cannot. Um, if, uh, if, you know, if Donald Trump, um, who, you know, uh, let's be real. Personally, I think his behavior is despicable. And I think it's the result of, you know, he's a, you know, people who are hurt, hurt others, yes. right? He comes from a really messed up father who gave him conditional love. He's repeated the process. If you look at the cycle with his kids, um, total conditional <coughs> love. And you see the result. And by the way, I'll put it on the other side. Hillary, who I adore, who is not the woman she is portrayed in the media, having met her, having spoken with her, knowing who she is, she's a one, but, and she would kill me for saying this, but Hillary is an abused woman. I feel what Bill put her through with all those affairs and all that public scorn that was heaped mm -hmm. upon her because of the, and she did what all victims of abuse do. She protected her abuser. 
right? So I see that stuff. I see the human inside, but most people can't. So here I am. I, I just really feel like, oh, God, this Donald Trump guy. You know? But I also recognize that if he stopped and rescued a kitten on the road that was going to get run over from a truck, people would attack him for that and, and attribute the worst. Why? Because they've attached a label that they are a proud Democrat or they are a proud liberal and anything Donald Trump does is evil. And the same way with the other side. And like I say, the, the political party labels are different down in Oz and in the UK oh. and Germany, and, but it's the same dynamic. There is, there is a, a tribalism, which is, uh, you know, the uh, tribalism is the the ultimate manifestation of attract of attaching labels to yourself. So even when it's a good thing, when you say, "I'm an environmentalist," or "I'm a you know peace supporter," or "I'm uh, opposed to the any label you give yourself, you're going to feel the need to defend mm. that identity. Yes. And as soon as you do, the, confirma the confirmation bias has set in and you cannot be rational. That's interesting. That's interesting because, yeah, we, you know, people will defend their identity to their death. And, and so many people do. And we've seen that through human history. Um, let me ask you about goals because you make a statement in the book that um, people should set goals that are bold, daring, and imaginative. Um, and I've heard you say... And they should all almost be audacious. Um, how do you reconcile um, some people who are aiming for these non-realistic goals? Because you, you say don't set a realistic goal. If they're setting these big, bold, imaginative, audacious goals, what about the people that um, run into self-doubt because they are so big? Do you think that that's just part of the process, that when you're setting big goals, Self-doubt's going to show up and you need to go through it. Well, to me, the, the secret sauce in goal setting is compelling enough to create internal motivation, but not so imaginative or audacious that you lose belief in your ability to attain them. Right. I'm in the penthouse here. If I say, I believe I can fly and jump out the window, I'm going to splat down on the mm. ground. Mm. I can read all the positive mental attitude books. I can uh, visualize myself as a bird. I can, you know, do all of the positive thinking. Gravity is still going to remain undefeated. Mm. So, but if I set a goal that I could build a squirrel suit that would allow me to jump off the balcony and make it over this little bit of land here, I'm on an island between Miami and Miami Beach, and that I could, you know, build one of those squirrel suits with the wings that come out and I could glide from my balcony because I'm high up over and make a, a soft landing in Biscayne Bay, that's a doable goal. And because, and if I really wanted to do that, which I have 
absolutely no desire to do since I have fear of heights and I don't know how to swim. <laughs> but if I actually wanted to do that, right, and was motivated by that, that that's a good goal. It's, but if you, know, if you work in Asia in a sweatshop and you make 10 cents a day and you set a goal that, oh man, for next year, I want to make 12 cents a day. I don't think that's really going to motivate you in a big way to do wow. some change in your life yeah. to make that happen. And by the same token, if you say, okay, my goal is next year, I'm going to make a thousand dollars a day. If you're at 10 cents, I don't think your subconscious mind is going to believe it. And that's the only audience for that, that speech. Okay. We're, we're selling to our subconscious mind, right? That's what we got to do with a goal. We got to make a sale to the subconscious mind. I need to tweet that out. <laughs> that's what goal setting is making a sale to your subconscious mind. Yeah. Um, and if you don't believe it's possible, if you, if you're making 10 cents, you really aren't going to believe that you're going to make a thousand a day next year, most likely. So you're again, not going to make a behavioral change because it isn't the goal we set that, that transforms our life. It's the behavioral change we make based on whether or not the goal motivates us. Yes. So if the goal is compelling enough to motivate us, and at least believable, even if it's on the, and I do like to err on the outer limits of the reach, right? The outer limits of the believability, mm. because I, you know, for me, the fact that I had lunch with the president of the United States of America, coming as the middle child of a single mother who raised three kids and you know, I, I shared a room with my brother, my sister shared a room with my mother, and the four of us shared one bathroom on Allied Drive in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm. And I was in jail at 15 years old, and I'm not a, a never, you know, don't have a college degree or any connections and didn't know wealthy people. The fact that I could get that I could achieve some of these things in my life, that's crazy. But I was able to achieve them because I, it's like, here's a good analogy for this. I think your goal has to be in the range of your headlights when you're driving at night, right? You know, so the headlight may give us, depending where we are and how much other light there is, and is it foggy or clear, and is it sunny or is the moon out or too many stars or whatever. But we believe we can get to what we can see in the headlights at least. Once we get beyond the headlights, maybe now we lose some of the belief that we could do it. So if you would ask me at, you know, when I was 15 sitting in a jail cell, you know, are you going to grow up and have lunch with the president one day? I would say, you know, I don't know what you're smoking, but that's some good shit. You know, can I get some of that? Yeah. Um, but as my life evolved and the headlights kept getting deeper and deeper and I accomplished now what I believed was capable to happen in my life um, was believable enough that you know I could I could excel further yeah look I, I like the concept of the radical rebirth also 
you know, your, your, your beliefs change, your identity changes, who you are changes, you are a new person, you can go for new goals. Uh, and, and of course, if you maintain a victim mindset, you can even use a radical rebirth as a way to stay a victim. Um, you made this really amazing statement, which really hit me really hard. And it said, when the victim is ready, the crisis will appear which I just think is just priceless. Um, can you talk a little bit to that point? Because I think it's so important. Yeah, that's one of the quotes I tweet out from the book or put with the book cover and it, it blows people's mind, mm. just blows their mind. Because of course, it's such an obvious play on you know when the teacher is ready. Yes. And when they hear it, it's like, Ding, 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 ding. Mm. They were like, holy shit, how did he figure that out? Mm. Well, I figured that out because I was a professional victim for the first 30 years of my life, right? So in, in my case, uh, I recognize, wow. Like, you know, for me, it was coming to the realization that I was living in all this drama and trauma and all those negative dysfunctional relationships in a row and all those health challenges because I was getting an emotional payoff from being victimized. That was my self-esteem was so low that I wanted to be a victim because it made me feel worthy. It made me feel like the reason my life wasn't working wasn't my fault. It's because I was an innocent victim. Yes. And um, so it just kind of came to me as I was writing the book, you know, when the victim is ready, because <laughs> I did, I would unknowingly, this is all done, as you know yourself with the work you're doing. It's all done on a subconscious level. You have no conscious awareness you're doing it mm. but one of the other things in the book that that really kind of gets people up in their grill is i say there are random events but there, there are random circumstances right but there are no random lives mm. i get if a sinkhole opens up and you're just under your driveway and swallows up your lexus you had nothing to do with that, okay? But if you move to six houses in a row and there's a sinkhole at each one of those six houses that swallows up your car, we can, we can definitively say, okay, you are creating that reality. You, you, know, you are finding the crisis that you can gravitate to. You are, you know, you you can find the cloud in every silver lining and you've demonstrated that. <laughs> I love how you turn those statements around. That's just absolutely priceless. Um, okay, so let me ask you two questions that were suggested I ask you. Um, now you talk about a re-engineering in the book about how to go from uh, how to have a radical rebirth and go through the process of having that. So what are some of the challenges you could expect in the initial stages of this re-engineering that you talk about? Uh, your insanity is going to try and recreate itself. Okay. Because that's what insanity does. 
and all of these mental things like if you you know we talked about trump his is you know he is a malignant narcissist that's always going to reinvent itself right and and even most people you say you have to get professional help um according to a psychologist there actually is no cure for malignant narcissism right um according to psychologists there actually is no uh, cure for sociopaths right um other than you know lobotomy type things or just so drugged under awareness that you know um victim uh situations like hillary that i mentioned or people who are victims of abuse children of alcoholics right Th these create such legacies such personality twists that um that um it, it you hang on to, and being an, you know, I was an addict. I was a teenage alcoholic. I was a teenage drug addict. I fought addiction issues my whole life. I became addicted to crystal meth when I was like 50 after being clean and sober for 30 years. Mm. Just reinvented my insanity. I told myself, okay. You could be a recreational drug drug user. Yeah. You know, you're smart enough now. You've figured enough things out. You're successful. You have a money. You're not one of those homeless crack addicts. You're not one of those crazed meth heads with the bad teeth and the lose their job and their house and everything. You're you're such a smart guy. You can figure this out. Mm -hmm. But that's just my was just my insanity reinventing itself, right? And that's why um, the children of alcoholics have such a high propensity to be alcoholics and drug addicts, same thing. Why people who are abused uh, have such a high propensity to grow up to be abusers. Why addicts keep falling into relapse because you're, you know, like again, I mentioned the emotional payoff we get from victimhood. Well, if you're not getting that emotional payoff and you haven't replaced it with something healthy, you're going to find a way to become a victim again because you need that emotional payoff that, you know, in my case, and, you know, the actually it's not in this book. It's in my DEFCON 1 book, which is really a specialized book just for people in direct selling. But I tell the story of this couple, Spencer and Shivani Pak, who were idols of mine in the business I was working in. And they invited me to come to their city and train their team. And they were taking me out for dinner the night before. And I was just regaling them with all of the drama and trauma in my life and how this happened and that happened and everything. And, you know, because that's what I did. I was a professional victim. Yep. And whenever I had a chance to tell people all of the horrific things that happened to me that I was persevering through, that was the way I was trying to tell myself I was worthy. That was the self-esteem I didn't possess that I desperately was seeking. And so we finished the dinner and Spence and Shivani had this gorgeous red Mercedes convertible and we were in the parking lot afterward and Shivani was in the back and Spence was opening his door and I was, you know, about getting in on the passenger side and he looked over across the car and he said, Randy, 
have you given any thought to what you might be doing to manifest all of this stuff? <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I was <clears throat> grinding my molars. <clears throat> How could this cold hearted son of a bitch, was he not listening to everything I just told him? Didn't I just to give him chapter and verse of all of the mean, evil, twisted things that the cruel world had subjected this poor, innocent victim to, and he didn't pay attention. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I was grinding my molars for like three weeks after that, just processing what he said. Um, but I will, I will be arrogant enough to give myself credit and say, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> I did recognize, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, it took me three weeks, but I did recognize, <clears throat> yeah, I was doing, I was contributing to that, but it took three weeks of pretty <clears throat> anger against Spence um, and self-reflection to be aware of that. I think that self-awareness, and you talk about the awareness bit in the book is very, very important. Um, two more quick questions for you. Um, in the process, as people are going through this re-engineering, what are some of the signs or signals that they're actually on the right track? Because, yeah, okay, the insanity is going to reinvent itself. That'll tell you that you're off track. What are the signs and signals that you're actually on track? You, you need to be referencing the source material frequently, right. meaning checking back the book, following my blog. Let's say you're doing your rebirth, following my process that I'm outlining in the book, checking back with my blog, listening to my podcast, because I will be calling you out all the time, because that's what I do in my work. That's what my job is. You know, I feel like if somebody doesn't unfriend me or unfollow me every day, I'm really not doing my job. I'm probably being one of those, uh, you know, saccharine, sugary, motivational speakers who just tells people that what they want to believe. Right. And that's not my, that's not my assignment on this planet. My assignment is to get in your grill. Otherwise, well, you know, we don't need more motivational pablum. We don't need more. I did it and you can do it too. You're a beautiful, unique snowflake and there's nobody like you and just be you. <clears throat> we got enough of that. Yeah. We need somebody who says, you know, really, that's the story you're selling yourself that you're just having four drinks to relax with dinner. Mm. Uh, you know, you're really just six glasses of wine because it helps you be uninhibited. You're really buying that story. You haven't realized you're an alcoholic. You know, mm -hmm. you know that's the stuff you're going to read in my blog. That's this, right. So um, that's the source material. But then I think we all have to find people that we can trust to call us on our stuff. Yes. People. And there's lots of people who will call us on our stuff. Oh, you know, there's, 89 people on who follow you on Facebook or are happy to call you on your stuff every day. 
but they don't care about you. They're calling you on your stuff because they hate you or they're envious of you in there or they hate themselves and they need to try and tear you down. You need people who love you and care about you and want the highest good for you. And uh, that will say, hey, you know, I don't think this is really serving you. Or, hey, I know you're excited about this new relationship, but have you noticed all the parallels of this relationship and the last three dysfunctional ones you have? You know, I, I love you and I'm worried that you're repeating the same negative pattern. You need people who can do that, not because they want to catch you or get you, but because they care about you. So if you can, if you can find one person or two people in your life who you can trust, entrust with that sacred honor, and you get the opportunity the, the sacred honor to do that for one or two other people. That's one of the greatest gifts of humanity. And that's, a, you know, we're looking for guardrails. We're looking for, again, because our insanity is always going to recreate itself. And I get everybody listening is not a sociopath and they're not a malignant narcissist, but addiction, alcoholism, uh, really social anxiety, really low self-esteem, repeating negative relationships, repeating abusive relationships. These are all, in, they're forms of insanity. Mm. And I sh maybe I shouldn't use the word insanity because then people are going to, maybe that's too charged a word because they think they need to be locked in a mental institution. Well, I contextualize. I think you've contextualized it well though. Okay, I, I hope everyone listening, watching really gets that. I'm not saying, okay, you know, you're running around with a butterfly net, and we're going to lock you up with a straitjacket. But recognize that those things are graduated forms of insanity that we're all, you know, there's research. In the book, I'm talking about the core foundational beliefs that you get in seven main areas. Mm -hmm health and wellness, God and religion, sex and sexuality, money and work, relationships and marriage, right? So I, there's seven big buckets. Um, and I'm saying your core foundational beliefs in all of those, for most people are created before you're eight or nine years old. If your parents are bickering all the time and one is abusive or one cheats on the other, your core foundational belief about marriage and relationships is probably set when you're six or seven years old. If everybody in your family is overweight, everybody takes 15 prescriptions, everybody eats nothing but Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, junk food, candy, cake, cookies, um, Twinkies, you know, your core foundational belief about health and wellness is set before you're eight years old, yeah. right? So there's research, and I mean, strong, compelling research that says a lot of the default personality traits are set in 60 days from birth mm. you know if you're a premature birth if the cesarean goes really sideways and it's a really and so you've got nurses and doctors um if talking angrily and frantically and is panicking and trying to save your life as a baby you don't even know what those words mean but you 
feel the tension, the anxiety, you're experiencing physical discomfort because the birth isn't going right. Um, if you had to be in a, a NICU, NICU unit, the neonatal ICU, yeah. and the, you know, like they've learned now today, they actually ask volunteers to go to NICU units and just touch the babies and be there, you know, reach through with the plastic gloves and just hold the hand of the baby, you know, or put your hand on their chest, just so they feel the connection of another human, which is normal when you're first born. Well, there's a lot of research that shows like, if that happens, if you're in one of those traumatic births, or you're abandoned at birth, you know, or you're an orphan who's abandoned on, you know, Go to Mumbai, go to Rio de Janeiro. There are orphans. There are four-year-old, five-year-old kids, orphans abandoned on the street. Their core vision, their philosophy, their beliefs about life, they're set at four years old. Mm. And until and unless we can get them to a point where we can bring them to the surface, and recognize, you know, my money is, I'm a high school dropout, right? I'm not a psychologist, but I will say the greatest, most brilliant thing Freud ever said was, and I'm paraphrasing, this is not the exact thing, but basically he said, until you make the conscious, until you make the unconscious conscious, you're going to attribute it to fate or luck or destiny. But the truth is, if you're an abandoned child, or you were an orphan, or you were put up for adoption, and you went through 16 different foster homes in your childhood, of course, you're going to blow up your marriage the first time you get married, if you never recognize that, wow, I had this conditional love withheld from me all through my childhood, I built this brick wall, this force field around me to protect myself from getting hurt. So I will never let anybody love me because if they love me, they could then later withdraw that love. If you don't bring that to consciousness, of course your, your marriage is going to end in divorce because your spouse is just at some point going to say, I can't get in. I've never been able to, I love you with every fiber of my being, but you won't allow me into your real life, yeah, yeah. right? You've got to make that unconscious conscious. And that's what I think the journey to enlightenment is all about. It's recognize that we all have that stuff. And you say, well, I was born in the suburbs and I had a happy mom and dad and they're still married after 40 years. And okay, great. But I would bet there are some unresolved uh, issues, some traumas, some things that happen that, you know, I don't know, you know, I remember my mother taking me and my brother to Bambi. And when Bambi's, you know, was it his mom got shot or his, I think it was his mom or dad, whichever one it was. Oh my I was like traumatized. And today there would be an, a blog about that and people would be talking about it on Twitter and saying, hey, don't take a five-year-old to see this movie yet. Wait until they're nine or something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
In those days, none of that stuff happened. It was just, it's a Disney movie. It's a family movie. But, you know, and, you know, maybe you were seven years old and your dog got run over by a car. That's a traumatizing thing. At seven years old, you're not prepared to mentally process that. When your parents get divorced and you're nine years old, you're not prepared to mentally process that. When you're 12 years old and you were born and called a boy and you suddenly really believe you're a girl, you're not mentally prepared to process that. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we, we get to, you know, one of the things I say in the book that people laugh about is I say, listen, if, if you got this far and you're reading this book yeah. and you're not in a mental institution, you're not in prison and you're not, I forget whatever the third one was, you're doing amazing. The fact that you're like a functioning member of society, you've already overcome so many obstacles and hurdles. Um, but that's what this, this journey of life is about, is about, and, and for anyone listening, please don't think that this is all life is about, is finding unresolved trauma and we need to go back to relive everything in the childhood. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, like for me, my first radical rebirths were having to kill off versions of me that I hated. And now my recent radical rebirths are where I'm moving toward a new version of me that I want to manifest, a higher version of me. And you can join anywhere along the process. You do not have to be homeless, drug addict, sleeping under a bridge and hate yourself and want to do a radical rebirth. You maybe. Maybe you were much smarter than I was. Maybe you learned much quicker than I did. And maybe you have a pretty good life. But you just realized, yeah, I do have a pretty good life. But I want to have an amazing life. And so I, I too, can choose to, have a re to create a rebirth for myself. Even though I'm not a homeless drug addict. Even though I'm not an abusive, you know, whatever. I think that that is absolutely priceless. So I'm just giving the context for people um, to understand that you don't need to lose everything to start the journey back up. You don't need to hit rock bottom to start the journey because that's so popular in, in fiction and in movies and a person loses everything and then they finally realize that they can be the person they want to be. I think it's very liberating to take the approach that you don't need to do that. Um, we started this with what's, you know, a day in Randy Gage's life like. Let's end it with what's the goal that is stretching you now? Now that you've gone through a radical rebirth and you've written the book, what's the goal that is setting you on fire now that's, you know, in the headlights, but far enough ahead that it's stretching you? Uh a couple things jump to mind when you ask that question. One is this new prosperity ministry. Uh, my goal is uh, I want that to do something that I want that to duplicate and scale what I've been doing until this point, which is 
uh, I will get asked now and then to speak to at-risk youth um, or high schoolers or college kids, or um, sometimes I'm speaking to kids in jail. Mm. And they listen to me because I was in jail, right? I'm not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood coming in in my cardigan sweater, you know, saying you know, whatever he used to, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yeah. I'm from the hood. I've been in the crack houses of Liberty City and Overtown and National City. I've done drug deals. You know, I've been, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've held up 7-Elevens and Kentucky Fried Chickens. I've burglarized houses, right? Um, so I, you know, if you tell somebody you have street cred, you got no street cred, right? Either if you have to say it, you got, you know, you don't have it, right? When I walk in and they know my story. Uh, so what I'm trying to do, if I, and talk about a hostile audience, right? It's, uh, the introduction I get isn't, and he's in the Speaker Hall of Fame, and he's a 14-time New York Times bestselling author, and he's, you know, they're like, we have a guest speaker today. His name is Mr. Gage. If you so much as look cross-eyed at him, you're going back in your cell, or you're going back in, you know, isolation, you know. So they're, I mean, the arms are crossed, the legs are crossed. They're glaring at like, who is this guy? Um, but then I speak my truth and I let them know I've been where you are and there is a way out mm -hmm. and you don't have to be a narco trafficker to be successful. And you don't have to be a rapper to be successful. And if you want to be a rapper, okay, that's cool. Narco trafficker, that's not so cool. But there are ways and there's a free enterprise system. It's in place. And absolutely the odds are stacked against you, just like the odds were stacked against me. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm white, uh, those odds were stacked against me. There are certain privileges that are built into the system for people with wealth and affluence and mm -hmm. the color of your skin and your ancestry. And I get all that. And, and I'm telling you the truth. There's still a way out. And so what I'm trying to do with those that I think I can scale with the prosperity ministry is get that message to the teens, to the young adults. Um, so um, that's why I do, it's a, it's a love offering basis. I say, you know, I, you know, cause I can only do so many free Facebook posts and podcasts and blog posts and, you know, visit jails and whatever. But if I can really get this prosperity live stream every Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time, if I can get 50,000 people watching a week and then I can get 100,000 people watching a week and I'm, you know, I'm holding the vision that at some point I'm going to open my email and there's going to be a message from Netflix or Apple or Hulu and they're gonna say, hey, we've seen your program on YouTube. We'd like to put it on our streaming service because yes. we think 2 million people a week should see that. That's the vision I'm holding for myself. Um, so that's lighting me up. That's my, 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 my next big um, goal that's pulling me toward it is, and it's just a test at this point. Basically, 
I have a thousand, I'm doing a keynote every week for a thousand to 2000 people right now. Mm-hmm. And I want to see, and it's not, I'm not getting the kind of financial return that I would get just doing that on the free market and charging for it yet, mm-hmm. although it's growing. And I'm not getting 50,000 a week, but I've only done at this point why, <clears throat> excuse me, while you and I are talking, I think I've done six so far. So, you know, I'll look at it six months from now or a year from now, and that's the time to really evaluate it. Mm. Um, But that's my hope that the universe is ready for that. And then I have two other books that are calling me. Um, One is I want to write the definitive end all book on prosperity. Mm. I want to take uh, the, like one of the most uh, impactful books in my life was The Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes. Mm. I would like to write The Science of Prosperity, the equivalent of that book, just on the principles of prosperity. How, how do you apply them in a real world with TikTok and the Trumpers and the anti-Trumpers and the, the hate and the division and the clickbait and the low self-esteem people and the corruption in government. How do you stay prosperous in a world like that? How do we persevere through that? And then I actually want to write a science fiction trilogy, a la Matrix or Lord of the Ring or Star Wars kind of thing, Um, but sneak in the principles of prosperity in that writing. Mm. So those are, you know, if you say, okay, what's, Really, you know, I want to win at least one more World Series with my softball team. Yep. Um, but those are the things that are getting me out of bed at the moment. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's uh, there's 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 creativity there. There's there's giving back to community. Obviously, you know, you've done well for yourself. You've got the money thing out of the way. You're happy. Uh, you, you're teaching principles that excite you, um, and to have those those kind of goals, I think that. That's a, a beautiful place to be at. Um, I want to say a huge thank you, Randy, um, uh, taking the time out to have a chat about this, uh, talking about the book, about yourself, about your vision, about what it's about, I think is, is a wonderful insight into the brain that ticks. Um, I've known you now for like 20 years, I think, and uh, you've continually inspired me and motivated me. Um, I tell the story to people that the first time we met, um, I, I remember you came in a suit that was, it looked like a leopard suit or something like that. It was, it was, it was very, very flashy. And I was, I was fanning, oh, there's Randy Gage. Oh my God, am I ever going to get a chance to speak to him? Um, and I held the vision of us becoming friends and, and really getting to understand the, the prosperity principles that you taught. And uh, if anybody's listening and wondering whether or not Randy's worth um, investing the time to get to know. Um, I don't spend 20 years of my life following somebody just for the fun of it, right? Uh, <laughs> and just be clear, I wear flashy suits. <laughs> I definitely don't wear leopard suits. <laughs> well, I, I, I have this. I think I'm, I think I'm the Tiger King guy. <laughs> I, 
don't know why I've got this leopard suit thing in my head. I mean, I, I, I don't, it was okay, let's call it a flashy suit. <laughs> a flashy suit. So um, the book is uh, Radical Rebirth. I um, mean, it's an absolute, uh, you need to read it. It is a no-brainer. Um, I have read hundreds and hundreds of personal development self-help books. Um, I have not read a book like this. And I'm not saying that just for the sake of the podcast or the interview. I'm not saying it just because it's you, Randy. Um, I think the book is actually tremendous, incredibly fascinating, great ideas, challenging me to think differently. And I really appreciate what you do in the world. Uh, what's the best place people can follow you? Um, standard question we end with, is the website the best place people are going to go to? Yeah, randygage.com is kind of... Starfleet Command, you can find all, all my stuff there. There's be a link for the Prosperity live streams every Saturday, link to the podcast, link to my blog. Uh, and to engage with me, best place I really connect with people is on Twitter. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, thank you again, Randy. And uh, listeners, wherever you are, make sure you connect with Randy. Uh, and you know the drill. Wherever you are, have an awesome morning, evening, or night. And I will catch you on the very next episode. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Do me a favor and practice the circulation law of prosperity and tell people about Prosperity TV. So if you would, just put something up on your Tumblr, your Twitter, your Facebook, your YouTube. Uh, let people know what you think of the Power of Prosperity podcast. Even take a screenshot of your phone and maybe post that picture uh, so we can build the community here at the podcast. Thanks, guys.